We're going to read the entire passage. It's a little long, but um, you will hopefully be captivated by it because it is probably the most famous passage in the Bible. And by the way, my name is Fritz Games. If, you, if I haven't met you, please introduce yourself. I work at Western Kentucky with Reform University Fellowship and um, have had the privilege of serving Caitlin, who is in here, uh, getting to know Travis a little bit. And um, I met somebody else last Sunday. Where is she? Yes, I've already forgotten your name, but Christina, my daughter remembers it, and you're in her phone. Um, but we look forward to getting to know Christina. Uh, Luke chapter 15, verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you having a hundred sheep If he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he came home, he called together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost." Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had And took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country. And he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country. Who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. 
But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe, and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand, and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what those things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Let's pray. God, thank You for Your Word. Thank You, God, that You still speak to us through Your Word. We do not have to consult and look outside of You to know the mind of God, to know the will of God, to know the heart of God. So thank You. Thank You that on Sundays as we are able to get around Your Word, that You feed us. And so feed us this morning. Open our eyes that we may see, and our ears that we may hear, and our hearts that we may believe. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, Just recently, I made an order on uh, eBay. I've been thinking about this for about 10 years. But when uh, I study at home, or even in the summers at my office, it seems like every summer there's a construction project. Last year they were roofing um, outside of my window for two months. And these were loud roofers with loud voices and all sorts of explicatives. And this year there's a guy above my office building a bathroom. So, I finally asked some friends, if I'm going to get headphones, what do I buy? I want the noise-canceling ones. And they said, here's the kind you've got to get. I looked them up, I read the reviews, they're Bose, noise-canceling, they're like the creme de la creme. And I found them on eBay, of course, for half price. Have you ever worn a pair of these? Oh my goodness. Not only do things just go silent, if you put music on, just say I was dancing in my basement when I got them. That's enough said. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. 
It's as if all your problems go away. And all you hear is that music. And you're celebrating and dancing. As I thought about this, and I thought about this passage, and even as my wife said, what are you preaching on this morning? This to me is the heart of the Bible. If there is one passage that you want to explain to a believer or to an unbeliever, what is the central point of the Bible? What is the central message of the Bible? If I can cancel out everything else for a minute and hear one thing from the Bible, what is it? And it is simply God's grace. As Sinclair Ferguson, the great Scottish pastor and theologian, who I listen to like a drug addiction, says, Grace, grace, grace. It's about grace. The message of the Bible is grace. Your first impression of God is grace. Your overarching impression of God is grace. And in this passage, we see clearly that grace displayed in Jesus seeking that which is lost. In other words, Jesus wants the lost to be found. That heaven gets excited when lost things are found. Let's look at our context for a minute. Verses 1 and 2, Jesus has a crowd gathering around Him as normal. They are tax collectors and sinners, which was a common designation. Just as we would designate you know, those sorts of people today, right? But these weren't just average sinners. I want you to think about this for a second. If you know anything about what a tax collector did... You are in a nation that is occupied by a foreign nation. So the Roman government has come in and they occupy your nation. It would be like another country coming to the U.S. and occupying Owensboro. And now you don't have the freedoms and liberties that you once had. You must do what they say. You must pay them taxes. And then one from your own number, your own community begins to work for that government taking your taxes and not just taking your taxes and giving to the Roman government, but taking for themselves. I looked at my daughter's paycheck the other day. Almost 25% of it was taxes. Yours is probably more. All of a sudden, I became a political ranting Christian. Just kidding. I said, welcome to the world. Now imagine if your one from your own church becomes the person that enforces those taxes. And then after you've worked 12 to 14 hours, says, I want more so that I can buy my boat and go to the lake while you go work more to pay me. See, we're not just talking about sinners and bad people. We're talking about corrupt, unjust Sticking it to you people. I want you to understand this clearly. Someone tried to abduct my daughter three weeks ago. 
It's that person that is gathering around Jesus. And He lets them. And it doesn't even say He declares them to be righteous and justifies them. It just says He's eating with them. You can imagine the outrage. I had a bunch of Kappa Sigma kind of partying students in a Bible study a week ago. And even the partying Kappa Sigs were going, man, that ain't right. Like, I, I, at minimum, I would be confused about Jesus. Grace is confusing. You see it in verse 2. The Pharisees and the scribes, just like you would, just like I would, are grumbling. They're complaining. Who is this man that receives sinners and eats with them? Has table fellowship with these type of people? Jesus is drawing a crowd of very bad people. And it's in that context that Jesus gives us three parables of lost things. The first is of a lost sheep. The second is of a lost coin. And the third is of two lost sons. So I want to look at these parables under the headings of lost, of God pursuing the lost, and God throwing parties when the lost are found. First of all, and we'll do this pretty concisely, look at verse 4. We have a lost sheep. Verse 8. We have a lost coin. And it's interesting in these two cases, in neither parable does Jesus say how they were lost. He doesn't explain how they were lost. He just says they were lost. Very often when I know people that are really, really, you know, those people and messed up and lost, I like to think about how they got lost and how it's all their fault. Right? Jesus doesn't say any of that. He just says they were lost. He doesn't blame the right or the left for their lostness. They're lost. And then you have this younger brother who is lost. Verse 12, he's so lost that he goes to his father and he says, Father, I want your inheritance now. Now what does that mean? Even in our context, you understand what that means. If your child came to you and they said, Dad... Granddad, mom, grandmother, can I have my inheritance? Now maybe the son wasn't literally wishing that his father would die. But that's the equivalent of what he was saying. I'd rather have your stuff than you. I would rather have the inheritance than your livelihood, your life. And in this culture, in an ancient Near Eastern culture that was totally framed by honor and shame, do you realize what a big deal this is? He's so lost that he asked that his father be dead so that he can have his stuff he spurns his father, verse 13 through 16. He leaves. He squanders it. 
His deeds begin to catch up with him. This is what we call college, right? There are a lot of younger brothers in college running from their parents, running from what they perceive of God. And they don't want anything to do with me. That's why we need to pray. And yet, the younger brother, as is typical, we normally hear this parable as the parable of the prodigal what? Son. Singular. If you've read any Tim Keller, he's kind of helped dismantle that. If you listen to Sinclair Ferguson and other people, some of that's beginning to be dismantled because what you realize in this context, both sons are lost. The younger son is lost through licentiousness and all this permissiveness and liberty of just throwing off these apparent bonds of God. So it's interesting because he tends to think of God in terms of law and legal and bad and bondage. So I'm going to escape from that. So in one sense, the younger brother is a legalist, interesting enough. So if you tend toward that and you think, I don't want any of those legalists, you're a legalist too. And your friends who run in that direction, who would never admit they're legalists, they are. We're all legalists at heart. We all have a frame that comes from Adam and Eve that says, did God really say you can eat from all of this goodness and gifts? Surely He's not that good. Surely God's not good. Surely He's a harsh man. And so the younger brother in licentiousness and loose living runs from that. The legalist stays at home and tries to live under its bondage. He doesn't seem to be lost. He seems to be obedient and dutiful and disciplined. But as the text clearly says, he's lost. As a matter of fact, in the context... Jesus is very clearly trying to reach both. He's obedient, hardworking, has traditional values, he's patriotic. Verse 28 says that he's deeply angry and appalled and refuses to go in. In other words, he's in the presence of his father and lost. He's in the family, he's in the home, and he's lost. He's physically geographically present and he's lost. Both brothers saw the father as a law giver and they as law keepers. Relationship with the father was a contract, not a covenant. It was a contract, not a relationship. I will do this if I get this. The younger brother says, give it to me. The older brother says, I'm going to work for it. Both of them were not in it because of the goodness of their father. Sinclair Ferguson says it like this. The Pharisees and the scribes, like Jesus, believed in the holiness of God. They believed in predestination. They believed in the law of God and its application. But the Pharisees believed and taught conditional grace and therefore a conditional God. And our Lord Jesus brought down upon them the woes of the judgment seat of God 
Because at the end of the day, they were not only distorting the gospel, they were distorting the character of His heavenly Father. And He knew His Father best. And He was jealous for the loving, gracious, free character of His holy Father. You see, the Pharisees preached that men could be saved if they met conditions. And Jesus preached that He would save those who meet no conditions. Jesus' message was, Everyone who thirsts, come. He who has no money, come. Buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Unconditional grace from an unconditional God. The Bible's message is not get it together and come to God. It's not get found first and then come to God. It is that the lost can come to God. As a matter of fact, not just that the lost can come to God, that God pursues the lost. God chases down the lost, whether it's an older brother or a younger brother. So if you are an older brother or a younger brother, both stemming from that frame you have of God, God wants you. God's pursuing you. And if you, are, you have friends that are so much older brothers or so much younger brothers and you think there's no way, there is a way. Because God pursues the lost. Did Adam and Eve have it together? Did Noah, who got drunk when he got off the boat? Abraham, who lied about his wife? Moses, who murdered a man? David, who murdered a man and committed adultery with his wife? Did they have it together? Were they upright? They were lost. Peter? Paul? The murderer? The prostitute in Luke 7? Lost. The Bible says that Jesus came to seek and save that which was lost. One application, and we'll go to point two. One of my Kappa Sigma students asked this question in our Bible study the other day. He said, is it easier to live with your lostness than to admit it? Is it easier to live with your lostness and manage it and kind of keep it under control and not let people see it, right? Or admit it. Is it easier to tread water in the ocean and try not to drown than to just take the life preserver? God loves seeking the lost. He gives us three parables to show it. God pursues the lost. He came to seek and save that which was lost. Look at the sheep. What does He do? And this is terrible agriculture and farming, right? He leaves the 99 and risks them to go after the one. Would you do that? Well, Fritz, they're in a fence where I've got... Don't worry about all that. He leaves them. It says it. He leaves them to go chase down the lost. In the coin... He sweeps and sweeps diligently. God is at work diligently seeking the lost. In verse 31 with the older brother, God doesn't look at the older brother and go, you legalist. He goes, 
Come in. All that I have ever had is yours. You've always been my son. You don't have to earn it. I'm inviting you to open your eyes to your sonship. Open your eyes to my goodness and the stores of grace that are simply yours by virtue of being my child. Turn away from that legalistic framework. Turn away from a heart that sees God as a taskmaster. How does he pursue the younger son? This is fascinating. Verse 12. We were reading this in our Bible study. Father, give me the share of the property. What does the father do? He gives it to him. I asked my Kappa Sigmas, I said, what do you think of this God? If, I said, if you could only look at this verse in the Bible and you were on a desert island and you had one verse and this was what you had to learn about God, what would you learn? And one of them said, he's weak. He's permissive. Like he just lets his younger son take all this. He, I wouldn't do that. I said, exactly. Because it actually takes more strength to be sinned against and still love. I would have put down the hammer. Well, you're out of here, son. You're not getting my stuff and you're getting kicked out of the family. Or I'm going to control you and lock you in your room and you're never going to get out and you're going to do right. That's easy, right? That's managing your lostness. He pursues the son... By letting him sin. By letting him pursue his lostness to its own end. I want you to think about that for a second. That's a tough concept. He pursues his son by letting him wander. And he's not absent from that lostness. This is unbelievable. I remember a few months ago, my wife and I were celebrating our 21st anniversary. And we were actually having a terrible day. We were butting heads, and I had this great idol. It's what the Bible calls false images. I had this image of what our anniversary was going to look like, and it wasn't working. So I was getting James 4 angry because my idol was disappointing me. Well... On our 25th anniversary, I would say we had one of our top five subtle, silent argument fights. And as I thought about that, as we drove home and we sat in the driveway, it felt like junior high dating or something, or high school, like, we just got to sit here until we figure this out or get over this, and how could it be this bad? How could it, this is our 21st anniversary. And as I lay in bed that night, I thought to myself, the legalist in me wants to think that God was not in that car with us. That He was absent from our lostness and confusion and sin. That is not true. Richard Sibbs, the Puritan, one of my favorite Puritan writers said this, No one is fitter for comfort 
than those far off. No one is fitter for comfort than those far off. There is more mercy in Christ than sin in you. Jesus came to seek and save that which was lost. Matter of fact, verse 20 says that He would shed all ideas of what God looked like. All ideas of what an ancient Near Eastern father looked like. He would pull up His skirts and He would hightail it through the streets. Women could do that in that culture. Children could do that in that culture. But not men. He would throw caution to the wind all of His honor to pursue His Son. As a matter of fact, so much so that He would take from the rest of His inheritance that belonged to whom? The elder brother. Right? That's all that's left. No wonder He was mad. Wouldn't you be? And He takes from the elder brother's future inheritance and He splurges it on him by killing a fattened calf. And you didn't do that all the time, only for super significant celebrations. And He lavished His love on him. Because God wants the lost back, He pursues the lost and He throws a party for them. And the sheep parable comes back with a sheep. And you might think this is kind of odd. Like when we lose our dog and we bring the dog back, we don't throw parties. Lost a coin. Okay, she found some money. It seems a little extravagant, right? Calling all their friends together. Seems a little extravagant. And in the lost son case, the younger brother... It's not only extravagant, it would be in the culture's eyes ridiculous and the opposite of what should have occurred. You should have punished your son. You should have excommunicated your son. You should have publicly made him look like the fool he was. And instead he exalts him and raises him up and floods him with gifts and kills the fattened calf. God not only pursues the lost, He wants them found. And when they're found, He throws a party for them. And He throws a party for them at the expense of the elder brother. Do you know that's what the point of the Bible is? That your elder brother came to this earth to give his very life for you. So that you can be lavished lavished with grace so that the fattened calf could be killed for you. One of my Kappa Sigmas said this. I said, how do you think the father felt as the son walked away? And And he said this. He said it must have killed him inside to watch the son that he loved walk away. And I thought, Wilson you have said much more than you know. God would be killed. God would give up His life. The Son would be sacrificed so that we can become children of God. What image of God do you have? What is His manner and His disposition toward you? What cures a legalist from legalism? Is it just to run to the far country and say, I'm giving up on it all. I'm going to 
Or is it to be more legalistic? I'm just going to try harder. You know what cures legalism? To quote my Scottish brother again. Grace, grace, grace. Do you know what cures licentiousness and permissiveness and throwing caution in the wind and just doing whatever you want? Grace. 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 That is the point. That is all other noises need to be canceled. That is what we need to hear. Let me close with this illustration. And it comes from Ezekiel chapter 14. In Ezekiel chapter 14, God comes to Ezekiel the prophet. And in that day and age, they were, they, they were idolatrous And they not only had a few idols, it says they had a multitude of lovers, a multitude of idols that their hearts were going after, is the word Ezekiel uses. In their hearts, they were substituting other gods and other lovers for the true God and the true lover of His people. And God comes to Ezekiel and He says, What should I do with these people when they come to me and they consult me and they want me to answer them and they have these multitude of lovers? If I were Ezekiel, I would say, (laughs) you know what to do. Take them out. They deserve this. Think about this. This would be like me coming to my wife with 17 of my friends I have on the side and saying, all right, honey, can I get some advice from you? And she says what God says in Ezekiel 14. I am going to woo their hearts back to me. It's God's grace. It's God's love that we see in Jesus Let's pray. God, everything in my mind and heart and my conscience, even Satan, wants to accuse me and accuse you of, not, of non-truths. That you are not gracious. That you are not loving. That you are not forgiving. That you write off the lost And God, I begin to start living by legalisms. I'm not even man enough, Lord, to try to live by the true law of God. So forgive me. Thank you that grace is true. Thank you that the the disposition of this Father mirrors the disposition that you have for the lost. And so would you weave that deep into our hearts, O God? Would it change our attitudes, our demeanors, our words, our behaviors, our relationships, our church, our city, and our world? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.